Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Jay Sigurd here. Thanks for joining me again on today's broadcast. We are headed into part three of our series on the topic of creation versus evolution. I trust the previous two episodes were helpful, and we're just going to keep moving forward. But before we do... Please subscribe to these podcasts so you can be alerted when they're released each Friday. And also, if you could leave a five-star review, if you think it's appropriate, again, that helps us tremendously in our efforts to get the message out to as many people as possible. So what can you expect today? We'll be diving in a bit further to the creation-evolution controversy and setting the stage for some fascinating evidence that stands in stark contrast to the possibility of Darwinian evolution even ever having occurred. I know that's a bold claim, but I think you'll find that what you hear is very supportive of that assertion. And again, as a reminder, on our website, thestartingpointproject.com, we have right now about 34 free videos, streaming videos. A lot of them have to do with creation and evolution, and there's a lot of visuals there which really help convey these concepts that we're discussing here through the podcast. Now, by way of quick review from the last episode, one thing I did was I mentioned how important it is to define our terms. When the word evolution is used, it's used in many different ways. I mentioned they talk about the evolution of the telephone, how it's changed over the years, and it certainly has. We talked about different breeds of dogs, about 350 of those. There's different breeds of cats, different beaks on finches, Those things are all facts of science. Nobody denies those things. We see them all around us. But those things really have nothing to do with Darwinian evolution. I also mentioned that we need to be careful when we just throw the word evolution out there. Someone might say, well, evolution is true. It's a fact. I mean, we see change all the time. That's known as equivocation. We set two things equal that aren't truly equal. Evolution and change. Evolution would certainly require change and involve change, but it's not just any kind of change whatsoever. And we're going to see in these broadcasts that the change we actually observe in nature around us aren't the types of changes that would lead to Darwinian evolution. So I recommended using the phrase molecules to man evolution. Don't just say evolution, because people see that as just being change. And if you deny evolution, it seems like you're denying change, which (laughs) you're not. So molecules to man evolution says non-living, dead molecules came together to form a living cell. The living cell turned itself into every other life form on this planet over a few billion years. So that's what we're referencing when we're talking about uh, evolution, the idea that all life descended through natural processes from common ancestors, which they themselves originated from a single-celled organism, and that single cell arose from dead chemicals a few billion years ago. I also mentioned that sometimes when evolution is being taught, it can seem very plausible. Just small changes here and there over millions and millions of years, and those changes can add up and you get the big changes, right? Well, again, we're going to show how it really doesn't work that way. It sounds plausible when you teach it that way, but when you peek under the hood, which we will really do when we're looking at the DNA a little bit later, 
that's where you're going to find out, oh, these changes, the changes are real, they're actually happening, but they're not going to add up to produce molecules to man evolution. Now, regarding, quote, new stuff for this podcast, one random thing, I personally am not trying to get the Bible taught in the biology classroom in the high schools or the state universities. Would that be cool if they did? Yeah, it's not plausible. That's not going to happen, and, and I get it. And many aspects in the Bible are things that you can't test directly by science or reproduce and repeat in a laboratory. But I mentioned before, the same thing goes with the Big Bang. You know, We're not repeating that in laboratory to watch it happen again. We can't test it directly, and we didn't observe it happen to begin with. So again, those are the historical sciences. So Again, I'm not trying to get this religious concept taught in the biology classrooms in high school and in the state universities. And even if somehow we made that attempt and some laws were changed where they're going to teach the Genesis creation account, you'd have a lot of teachers and uh, professors teaching something they don't believe, probably wouldn't do the best job of teaching something that they don't buy into, and then the laws could just get changed next time different administration comes in. They just flip back, and then it's out of the school. Then it's in the school. So that's not where my efforts really are. But I would like to see good science taught there. And we'll be talking about that. What, what could we do? Well, why couldn't you at the beginning of the semester in a public school, state university, have the teacher or professor say, you know what, there are two possibilities regarding the history of life on this planet. Either all life forms descended from a common ancestor by undirected processes of nature, or they didn't. They either did or they didn't, right? Am I pushing religion on the kids? Am I telling them that they need to place their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal savior to go to heaven when they die? No. I'm just saying logically there are two options. Either that process, that natural process happened, or it didn't. Then you can spend the rest of the semester examining what we actually see in the world around us. And the students can use critical thinking skills to decide if what they're observing now better supports one side or the other. Supports the idea that, yeah, it looks like it could happen all by itself, or it's like, wow, we can't even imagine. Everything we're seeing screams that, no, that just doesn't happen. There's nothing religious about that, but yet we're still not allowed to even go that direction. I mean, they kicked creation and Genesis out of the school system a long time ago, early 60s. Uh, prayer in the Bible and God were kind of kicked out. But they won't even allow looking at two views, even if we're not pushing religion. You're looking at logic. If the evidence seems to support the idea that it could not be the result of undirected processes, then the students can explore what a directed process would look like and even examine directed processes all around us to glean further information and better understanding of what are directed processes, what are they capable of. Again, you're not teaching religion. But you can't have both sides. Here's an interesting quote from Eugenie Scott. She's now the former executive director of the National Center for Science Education. This was an organization that was largely drafted to combat uh, the push to support the idea of creation. Here's what she said, quote, 
In my opinion, using creation and evolution as topics for critical thinking exercises in primary and secondary schools is virtually guaranteed to confuse the students about evolution and may lead them to reject it, unquote. What is she saying? You don't want to use these two options that things happen naturally or they didn't happen naturally, which would mean supernaturally or, you know, non-designed or design. You can't throw those two options out there because that might lead to the students not believing it all happened for no reason, with no direction, no design, no purpose. It just happened. And you can't have that. So she's basically saying, we only want the kids to think one thing. We've decided what that is ahead of time, and we're going to make sure they believe that. We're not even going to let them consider a different option, because if they did, they might say, hey, that one sounds a lot better. So that's not going to happen. I'm going to give you a quote that I think I had uh, as part of one of my earlier podcasts when we were talking about probably the origin of the universe and existence of God. This is from Richard Lewinton. He's a geneticist. Very telling quote. I actually appreciate this because he's pretty transparent of where he's coming from. It's a lengthy quote, but it's powerful. He said, quote, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door, unquote. Very powerful. He's basically saying a lot of what we're pursuing, yes, it, it might not make that much sense. It might even be absurd. But we are going to stick to this idea of materialism. It's not the idea that you like material things, you like buying lots of stuff. Not that. It's just that they're only going to resort to material causes, just stuff in nature to explain everything else in nature. They will not go to the supernatural. They won't let God get his foot in the door no matter what. They have decided that ahead of time. So I appreciate that quote, but that's very telling where many scientists are coming from. Which leads to one other quote that I think I probably shared last time or in the earlier podcast. This is from Dr. Scott Todd. He's from Kansas State University. He said, quote, even if all the data point to an, an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not naturalistic, unquote. So he's saying, even if everything we're looking at lends evidence towards design, an intelligent designer, we're just going to rule that out because that's not a natural explanation and we're only looking for natural explanations. So in that case, they will never, ever, ever find evidence for God, a creator, a designer. 
because when they see it and they recognize it, then they just write it off. Well, that can't be science because it's not natural. And science only deals with natural things because they changed the definition. I've covered that in the past. So I'm going to skip that for now. But I'll give you this analogy that I gave before. It's like looking at your laptop and someone says, I want you to write a 100-page research paper on the origin of that laptop, how it got here. But here's the catch. Nowhere in your paper can you ever refer to human beings. Men, women, scientists, engineers, programmers, none of them. Well, you'd come up with some pretty crazy stories of how we got laptops if you can ever talk about someone intelligently designing them and constructing them and researching all that. Can't go there. Everything just has to be natural processes going on around us with no direction, no purpose. Well, a lot of our science textbooks are filled with those types of things because they decided ahead of time we're not going to allow anything that would be intelligent or purposeful as part of the answer. Even if everything screams incredible design, we're going to say, well, this, somehow nature did that, and we will not allow anyone to even think that that's an option, that maybe there is something out there that gives purpose, that is a designer, that is a creator. They certainly scientifically can't prove it doesn't exist, but they've ruled it out philosophically. We're just, we're just not going there, especially not in our country and other countries too. That's just, that's just a given in the educational system. So they teach a lot of just-so stories, as was in that quote. Well, some of you are probably familiar with Rudyard Kipling, great children's author. He wrote books like How the Leopard Got Its Spots, How the Camel Got Its Hump. These are called just-so stories. It just so happened that this is how those spots got onto the leopard. They're very creative, very imaginative, made-up stories for children, and they're a lot of fun. But we don't want to see just-so stories in science. But way too often, that's exactly what we see. Here's a quote from Geo Times. This is a secular publication, and I think this is fascinating. It says, quote, Evolutionists have physics envy. They tell the public that the science behind evolution is the same science that sent people to the moon and cures diseases. It's not. The science behind evolution is not empirical, but forensic. Because evolution took place in history, its scientific investigations are after the fact. No testing, no observations, no repeatability, no falsification, nothing at all like physics. I think that this is what the public discerns, that evolution is just a bunch of just-so stories disguised as legitimate science, unquote. So he's saying... They want you to think that evolution has been proven just like gravity has been proven by physicists and all these things we get in a laboratory. This guy's saying, no, this is not empirical where you're doing all these observations and repeating it over and over in the laboratory. This is forensic. Someone died a long time ago, you know, three years ago, and now we're on the crime scene looking at some things we see today to try to figure out what happened three years ago when we weren't around to see it. That's forensic. That's historical science that I've been mentioning. That's what evolution is all about, but they want you to think it's just like the observational science or empirical science that again cures diseases and makes computers and cell phones. It's not. So we do have a lot of just-so stories. We have just-so stories about the origin of the universe. I covered the origin of the universe in four-part series or whatever earlier, so I'm not going to go into detail 
But here's one quote from Leon Letterman. He's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He said, quote, when you read or hear anything about the birth of the universe, somebody's making it up, unquote. Now, I don't think he was saying they are all lying. He's saying they're making it up because, again, they weren't there to see it. They can't repeat it. They can't test it directly. So they're telling you stories of what they think maybe happened 13.8 billion years ago. And we have just those stories about the origin of life. Ken Nielsen from the University of Southern California, he said, quote, Nobody understands the origin of life. If they say they do, they're probably trying to fool you, unquote. And that's very true. We will delve into the origin of life more at some point. I'm not going to make it part of this immediate series, but it's fascinating. And uh, we'll, we'll do it justice, but I'm going to skip through it for now. We have just those stories about the origin of species, the variety of life we have. We will be getting into that, so I'm going to skip that for now because that's, this series is part of that. We also have just those stories about the origin of mankind, all the ape men and all the skeletons. We will get into that. That'll probably be a, a sub-series, you know, one, two, three, four episodes on looking at the, all the ape men and the skeletons and bones and all that. We'll definitely delve into that. And then lastly... We have just those stories specifically about timing. <laughs> when I say timing, I mean the age of things, the age of the universe, the age of the earth, the age of when life started, all those things. That is a huge, huge, huge topic. I will definitely separate that out because it needs its own series. We will get to that. You're just going to have to hold on. Uh, for us to get to that point, I, I can't wait for it. It's one of the most misunderstood concepts, uh, and it that really gets people going. That it, it sheds more heat than light, unfortunately, off when people are talking about it. But continuing on with this series, when evolution is taught in the school systems and universities, there's often a lot of arranging and storytelling that goes on. So you're going to have to use your imagination here. Picture a tricycle and then a bicycle, and then a scooter, and then a motorcycle. Four modes of transportation. Tricycle, bicycle, scooter, and motorcycle. We could arrange those things in the order that I just mentioned, starting out with the tricycle on your left, and then next to that a bicycle, and next to that a scooter, and next to that a motorcycle. Line them up, and then talk about the evolution of the motorcycle. How what happened was, many, many, many years ago, you had a tricycle, and the smaller wheels in the back came together to make the larger real rear wheel of the bicycle. And then over time, the chains on the bicycle slowly morphed into um, an electric motor of the scooter. And then over even more time, the electric motor of the scooter morphed into a gas combustion engine of the motorcycle. That's how we got motorcycles. Now, that's a silly story. I just made it up, and you know that. But all I did is I took existing real things and I lined them up, which what appeared to be from simpler to more complex, and then I told you stories of how changes occurred over time to make one into the next. Very many similar things happen when teaching evolution. Here's an example. The famous horse series. So you got these horses lined up from small to big, you have Eohippus on one end and modern horses on the opposite end. This is a very interesting quote from Dr. Niles Eldridge. Now, he's a former curator at the American Museum of Natural History, one of the leading evolutionists. And 
This was his museum, the American Museum of Natural History. This is what he said, an evolutionist, about the famous horse series. It's in the textbooks and the museums and all that. He said, quote, I admit that an awful lot has gotten into the textbooks as though it were true. For instance, the most famous example still on exhibit in the American Museum is the exhibit on horse evolution. That has been presented as literal truth in textbook after textbook. Now, I think that that is lamentable. But by the time it filters down to the textbooks, we've got a problem, unquote. What's he saying? He's saying it never happened. And it shouldn't be in the textbooks. Well, if it shouldn't be in the textbooks, why is it okay to have it in the museum? And that was his own museum. It doesn't make sense. But sometimes they'll leave those things in there because they don't have anything to replace it with. And no one else really knows that the evidence is going against that. And it, they'll say it costs a lot of money. So eventually we'll update the museums. But So there are a lot of things that are presented as evidence that a lot of leading evolutionists know uh, have been disproven years ago. But it's still there. And basically, it's like you find a new fossil, and then you insert it into the existing lineup. So you already had a lineup of different fossils and how they evolved. Now you dig up something you've never seen before, so you look at your existing lineup, and you, you stick it in where it seems to make most sense physically, and then you imagine the transition over time. Well, that's the morphological structure, what it physically looks like. And so you stick it in the lineup of what perhaps happened. Does it look intermediary? But what would have to go on inside, within the DNA, to make the changes that we're seeing? We'll look at that in more detail. That's fascinating. Very, very interesting. We'll get to that later, so I have to skip that for now. But again, you, you dig up a fossil, you got to put it in the existing lineup somewhere, and then you just tweak your story a little bit to fit this new fossil. But that's not evidence that something evolved. It's something you haven't seen before. Uh, anyway, we'll cover that in more detail but here's a very powerful mental exercise. Think about the steps evolve, involved going from A to B. Okay, what's A and what's B here? Okay, glad you asked. This is a powerful example. Evolutionists believe 13.8 or sorry, 3.8 billion years ago, molecules came together to form a living cell and it was alive and it could reproduce itself. Again, we'll talk about that later in more detail. So you got the cell and it copies itself, and now you have two cells. And those cells copy themselves, and you have four cells, and they just keep copying themselves. So reproduction, it's called asexual reproduction. And things just copy themselves all by themselves. They just make a copy. You got another one. Well, at some point in evolutionary history, that had to change from just copying itself to making a pink and a blue one. Yeah, a male and a female. And in that scenario, the pink and the blue ones, they only contribute half of the required genetic information to reproduce. They each contribute half. They have to contribute it in an environment that is safe and protected and has everything that it needs to develop and become alive and then itself be able to reproduce by making pinks and blues. That process, I will cover more detail in the future, is so complex and you cannot do that step by step or you will not get reproduction. It has to happen, boom, the first time. I can't wait till we get to those details, but evolutionists have no answer 
for the evolution of going from asexual reproduction to sexual reproduction. There's an entire book written on this, which the guy did a great job. It's F. Lagarde Smith, and the book has a provocative title. It's called Darwin's Secret Sex Problem, <laughs> but it's not what it sounds like. It's, it's about this challenge that Darwin and evolutionary scientists have today. How did sexual reproduction evolve, going from a single cell just copying itself to having a pink and a blue and, and, and all that? It is so complex. You cannot evolve that over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years of making slight changes until it's all ready to go because then you can't reproduce along the way. It's just, we'll get into it. I'm even going to look into interviewing him on one of my podcasts because it's a fascinating topic, but you can't do that stepwise. And there are many things in nature that cannot be built piece by piece because they won't work until all the pieces are in place. You can't wait thousands or millions of years for all the parts to eventually be there. We will discuss that in detail in one of the upcoming podcasts. It's fascinating, so again, hang in there. This is all related to something that's called irreducible complexity. It's a term that was coined by Dr. Michael Behe from Lehigh University in his book, Darwin's Black Box. I can't wait to get to that subtopic because it's very powerful. You'll totally get it in it should make a lot of sense. It's, I think, powerful evidence of design and powerful evidence that you can't do the step-by-step undirected processes that are involved in Darwinian evolution. So what exactly drives Darwinian evolution? Well, primarily mutations and natural selection, accompanied by millions and millions and millions and millions of years. In our series, we will be talking more about mutations and natural selection. Just a brief comment right now about the millions of years. Time, these millions of years, are often used as the magic potion. So what might seem impossible to us, if you have enough time, it's possible. Now that might sound good, but it's not true. Certainly not when considering molecules to man evolution. So think about this analogy. If someone was holding out a shuffle, shuffle deck of cards, and they challenged you to pick the ace of spades on the first try. Could you do it? Probably not, but maybe. You actually have one chance in 52. Well, for obvious reasons, there are 52 cards. So when you grab a card out, you have one chance in 52 of getting that ace of spades. If you only have one chance, eh, probably not. Most likely, you're not getting it. If you did get it, you, you wouldn't be shocked. You'd be like, wow, I got kind of lucky a little bit, but it's not you know, newsworthy. But what if they didn't give you just one chance to pull a card out? They gave you 26. Every time you pulled one out, you put it back in, shuffled it around, and you, you did that 26 times. You'd actually have a 50-50 chance of getting that ace of spades. So again, not surprising, you're pulling out half the cards, You know, 50-50 chance, one of those times is gonna be the ace of spades. Well, what if you had one million tries? Well, you'd be pulling out that ace of spades every once in a while along the way. In fact, on average, probably about once every 52 tries. But that's not how it works regarding evolution. And I'll explain that further when we get to discussing probabilities and other aspects. Uh, in reality, time often makes things worse. I will explain that when we get to the DNA mutations and all that. And it's not so much a matter of time. In fact, time doesn't do 
anything. It's simply a framework in which events occur. They'll say, you know, time heals all wounds. That sounds great, but it's not true. Time doesn't do anything. What you need to examine is what processes are occurring within that time frame that might lead to whatever it is you're trying to explain. You know, time heals all wounds. Well, if you do feel better later or whatever, it's not because just time has gone by. It's because of what you've done during that time. A silly example, if I took my pen and I dropped it on the floor, would it turn into a bright yellow Lamborghini? No. (laughs) But wait, what if I dropped it over and over for five minutes? Still, no way. What if I dropped it over and over for five years? Well, still, no. All right, what about 500,000 years? What about 50 million years? I'm giving you plenty of time. Anything's possible if you have enough time, right? No, only things are possible uh, in that time frame that are possible to begin with. My pen, in fact, is going to get worse and worse. The more I drop it, the more it's going to wear out and all that. Um, Again, not the best analogy, but it does give you the impression. You can't just say, well, if you have enough time, anything's possible. Because it might sound good to some people, but it really doesn't even make any sense. What we need to examine are the processes that are actually occurring to see if they're truly capable of changing a single-celled organism into every other life form over a few billion years. But I don't want to get started on all the details right now because I won't have time to do it justice. I may start the next broadcast discussing those details because it's extremely eye-opening, but it takes a little time to develop and we're winding down here for the length of this particular podcast. We'll be talking about mutations and natural selection. Again, those are the the two heavy hitters. When you're talking about evolution, you typically hear about those more than anything else with the underlying assumption of millions and millions of years going on. So anytime you run into a roadblock, you just say, well, if there's enough time, this would probably happen, and then you move on really quick. But we will be taking a look specifically at what natural selection is. It might surprise you. you. You might be surprised to find out I totally believe in natural selection. It is a fact of science, a fact of nature. We see it all the time. And I'll explain exactly what it is and exactly why it doesn't really help evolution. Um, You can't resort to natural selection to explain uh, Darwinian evolution. So, well, of of course, that's just part of the picture. Mutations are what really drive it. I've got quotes stating, yes, mutations are basically the only game in town. That's what It provides the raw information for evolution to occur. We will examine mutations. And you can use critical thinking skills to see if what you're hearing from me makes sense or if you completely disagree with great logical and scientific reasons. So, what can you expect for next time? Well, it'll be creation versus evolution, part four. We're going to continue talking very rationally and logically. Again, I hope it's challenging to you, get you to think about some things you may not have considered before. I'm enjoying it. I hope you are too. And please, again, not only subscribe and leave a five-star review if it's appropriate, but invite a friend. Tell them to come along. Have them join us in the audience. That would be awesome. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way 
to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.